All right, let's bow our heads. Father, Lord, we thank you so much again for you being a good father to us and a merciful father. We thank you for your patience with us, your gentleness, and your love always pouring forth despite us. Father, we ask that you guide us in this message by your Holy Spirit. Help us open our hearts and minds to what you have to say in humility so that we can receive and apply these things to our lives so that we don't waste our lives away. Father, most of all, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and sending him once for all on our behalf to take our judgment away. Help us never become familiar with that. We ask these things in Christ's precious name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification, Part 98. The Bible is like a never-ending stream, never failing to give new life each and every time we go there. And what I mean to say is, whenever you go to the water of the Word of God, God gives you something new and fresh every single time. And if you've been reading your Bibles, you, you know what I mean, or at least you have a glimpse of that. Whenever you go to the water of the Word, He gives you something new and fresh every time. And that's something only God can do. I mean, what other book can you read a hundred times and truly get something new and invigorating out of every time? And the Word is, is truly infinite. And uh, only God can do that type of a supernatural thing for us. Uh, His Word is with us now in this world, but it's certainly not of this world. And that is proven by its supernatural nature every time you go to that stream. It never seems to fail. I believe you could read one of the books, you know, pick, pick a book, the Gospel of John or Acts or whatever you want. You could read one of those books a hundred times in your life. And every single time, the Spirit will open your eyes to something you didn't realize before. Amen? If you've been reading, you know. And that sounds wonderful, right? It is wonderful. And I believe many of you are experiencing that. But the trick is, you have to go to the stream each and every day. You've heard you can't you know, make the horse drink. You can lead him to water, but you can't make him drink. You have to choose to go to the stream every day. The stream is there. It's cold. It's fresh. It's new every single day. But your free will is the only, the only thing that can take that life away from you. The life that he wants to give you every time you go to the Word. So I hope and pray that you're enjoying the results of obeying this command from the Spirit. Read your Bibles. Read for context, observe the people, accept clearly stated theology as gold refined by fire, and keep away from hyper-doctrinalizing things. Pray for faith, and God will give it to you. He gives grace to the humble. So one of the most wonderful things we continue to rediscover 
as we continue to read our Bibles is that our Father in Heaven truly loves us. This came up on Sunday. That daily reminder that we receive from drinking His Word every day is what sanctifies us and changes our hearts and our lives. But we need that daily reminder. I'm sure you agree. <laughs> I know how cranky I can get, or um, maybe that's not the right word, but my mind can go down the wrong paths for the day when I don't have the word to start my day. And the word kind of sets you straight, you know, gives you that life, keeps you on the right track. And the spirit has something to work with to sanctify you even throughout the day. But he really does love us. And that's, that's one reason we need to keep reading the Bible. <laughs> as our flesh creeps in, as Satan attacks, as the world tells us he doesn't love us, we need the Word of God to refresh us and give us confidence. So we saw on Sunday, God has given us light in this world as a visual aid. The real light that we see from the sun. He's given us that as a visual aid, and He's given us all these spiritual analogies around light and darkness. What the sun provides us, and even the various colors of the rainbow... These are illustrations of God and His characteristics, of His attributes, and also of His purity. So we've seen this the last couple lessons on perspective. God is light, 1 John 1, 5. God is also unity, or one, as in James 2.19. We often learn about God by beginning with His attributes and then pointing back to Him. However, in the end, what he wants us to realize is that these attributes are the results of the eternal God being who he is. That should sound familiar. God being who he is. Like we're supposed to be sanctified. He is intrinsically light and he can't change and he's pure and perfect. So we don't construct God out of a list of attributes, like existentialism does. We don't construct him out of a list of attributes any more than the human eye can construct white light out of a rainbow. It's a mistake. In other words, stop trying to dissect God. Even separating one of his attributes from the others, maybe the ones you like the most, and you ignore the other ones. You forget his wholeness, his perfect balance. That's something the book of Proverbs talks about a lot. So God is pure white light, full and complete at all times. All of his characteristics are, are him, just who he is. God being God. And look at the Lord as one whole perfect person, because that's what he is. A whole, perfect, complete person. Not lopsided one way to the other. Towards justice or, or towards grace, for example. He just is all these things in perfection. Which is what a perfect father is, if you think about it. So, on the board, while we may appreciate the colors on the spectrum, there's nothing as complete and perfect as pure white light. And the same goes with God.
Go to 1 John 1, verse 5. Let's visit this one more time. You know, in the world, there's, ne there's never a perfect person other than the Lord. There's never an athlete or an actor or a po politician or a leader that you can point to and say, they are 100% right all the time. You know, there are some fine men that have lived throughout the ages, some leaders of our country that have lived throughout the ages, right? And they try to live righteously, many of them Christians who live according to the word. But even there, you, you, you know, you're fortunate to get someone who 98% of the time does the right thing, lives in fairness, right? With no partiality, etc., etc. And here we have, you know, God in a different realm, a totally different realm. In 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. That's a simple statement, but our minds can't comprehend that, really. We can't picture that. Jesus gives us a glimpse of God in the flesh, right? But our minds can't fathom what it looks like to have no darkness at all because we still have the flesh with us. So we've been learning lately about God's mercy as an example. Um, what a wonderful part of his light to look at and behold. But on the board, Pastor mentioned this on Sunday. And I call it the wonder of God. God is never merciful outside of being perfectly just and righteous. For he's like white light, always full of every facet of himself. Always full, 100% full of every facet of himself. So don't get like familiar with this. You know, you might say, well, I've already seen this point. I mean, just think about it. He's never lacking in any area. He's never lopsided. He's always full of all of his beautiful attributes at the same time. So none of his attributes ever truly stand alone like mercy or justice. We might see a part of God as when we studied how merciful our Father is. But that never separates from the whole of who he is. So we also saw on Sunday about light and synchronicity. Mercy is one facet of God's light. If we apply the prism of systematic theology, we might see mercy as a particular wavelength or color of light, which is fine for study purposes, but we ought never divorce it from the unity of the light himself or his other infinite attributes. If we do that, we risk putting God in a box, in our own soul. We limit God, and we handicap our own soul. We then enter into darkness, which is what came out in the lessons. We limit the infinite. And that's, that's to our own shame and to our own harm. We limit the infinite that God is. And it's not fair to God. And we are the ones that miss out because we won't see the whole light that he is without partiality. We won't enjoy the whole light that he is. So again, regarding the wonder of God, God is supernatural, beyond the natural. 
keep that open mind for the rest of your earthly lives that you will never have him totally figured out or summarized. Never in this life. In fact, we've heard the expression, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Many a Bible scholar has said that after 50 years of studying the Word. And how wonderful that is, because again, it's the infiniteness of the Word. It's that never-ending stream that keeps bringing in fresh water. And it is literally unending. And that's what makes God so beautiful. One of the things. But again, God is supernatural, beyond the natural. So keep that open mind all the time. You never, ever lose that perspective for the rest of your lives. You will never, ever be able to have him totally figured out or summarized. And if you keep that open mind, you'll be able to enjoy the whole light. Him who he is in fullness instead of limiting him. So back to the wonderful analogy that God has given us in this world called light. If you choose to box God out, you will be missing part of his pure light. So in that area of your life, whatever area that you tend to not want to look at of God or not pay attention to, you're going to have an absence of his light in that area in your life. So therefore, what is that? It's darkness, right? You're going to have a form of darkness in your soul in that area that you shut them out or that you are partial to certain attributes of him. And therefore, you ignore the others. You put them aside. And therefore, you're missing the whole picture of God. So when you stop keeping your mind open to his infiniteness and that you'll never get him fully, you limit him in your own soul. And therefore, you have an area of darkness to deal with. And as Pastor put it on Sunday, you make room for darkness. You do it. We do it to ourselves. So on the board, if we put God in a box, we have made those areas of our lives where God has been boxed out, we've made those areas areas of darkness in our own lives, in our own understanding. It is then that we begin wrestling with darkness out of perceived human necessity. I like how that's put. We begin wrestling with darkness out of perceived human necessity. I, I have to deal with this area now because I'm not secure in this area now. And we perceive insecurity because of our own boxing God out in some way. So now we struggle with it on our own and try to fix the problem on our own. Contrarily, if we have the fullness of light, in other words, we don't limit his limitlessness or his infiniteness, then we don't have to wrestle with the darkness. Or we don't have to think we need to wrestle with the darkness. So this includes refusing to live in what we know. We've been talking about knowing a certain scripture, uh, like the one on the board, 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You can know that all you want. You can say, I know that, I know that verse, I know. But I'm going to put that aside right now. I can't, I can't go there right now. I have trouble doing that. You start making excuses. So you can memorize the scripture all you want and even help other people by 
quoting it to them, I guess. But if you don't believe it and apply it, you're going to be inviting darkness into your soul. In other words, unless you do what this verse says, you won't have it work for you. Because your free will is involved, your humility is involved. And really, when we don't cast all our anxiety on him, it's actually arrogant. It really is actually arrogant. So we make more excuses. So you ready for this? Here's the big key. It takes faith. It takes faith to live in verses just like this. And you know what faith does? It does things. Faith moves. Faith is not stagnant. It's not like something you just hold on to and carry around. It is actually an active, dynamic, living thing. Or maybe it's not in your life. But that's what it's supposed to be. That's what true faith is. It's an active, dynamic thing. Faith lives and moves. It's not dead and lifeless. It's not a bunch of notes in a notebook that we say, oh, I know this now, so I'm all set. I'm going to go home and just veg out. That's not active faith. That mentality is not. Faith lives and moves. It's not dead and lifeless by its very nature. So you can quote the verse on the board all you want, but unless you do what it says, it will not work for you. You'll be missing something. And to me, this phrase really on the board here, knowing is not living. This point is like a crescendo to me of the last few months. Knowing is not living. And we saw in James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Even the demons know about God, and they're condemned to the lake of fire for all eternity. Why? Because while knowing, they refuse to live in what they know to be true. They rejected it. Satan can quote the whole Bible to you. But he rejected it in his heart. He didn't repent. And repent means to literally turn. It's not just in your mind. It's in your, it's in your life. It, 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 it is defined as we've been through several times. A really good definition of repentance is something that happens in the mind that results in a change in your actions. And the, Satan and the fallen angels refuse to do that. So they know a heck of a lot more than all of us about the Bible. But they're not saved. They're not, they chose not to live in it by faith. What did John the Baptist, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Apostle Paul all say at one point in their ministries? Make sure you do the deeds that keep with repentance. In the past, I would have said, that's a kind of a legalistic statement. I don't believe that anymore. All three of them said it. Why did they say, make sure you do the deeds that keep with repentance? 
A person can say they repent or believe, but the evidence can pile up against them. True repentance is revealed by its deeds. True repentance is revealed by its deeds. And so there are a lot out there that haven't really repented. They know a lot. They haven't really repented in their heart to God. And knowing is just not the same as living. So to take this a step further, I believe many a Christian, if they're saved, they have been duped into resting on the laurels of knowledge. They've been deceived into thinking they're living the spiritual life by accumulating knowledge and even sharing that knowledge with other Christians. Nothing wrong with that, right? While there's nothing wrong with gaining knowledge, and the Bible tells us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, it depends on where the heart is on the matter. What does your heart say about that, about gaining knowledge? Is that the end goal, in other words? Or is it just the beginning? On the board, knowing is not living. Knowledge is just the beginning. It's building a toolbox full of tools that are meant to be used to build things, to fix things, to help other people, both believers and unbelievers. But that means living by faith. What good is it to gain all this knowledge and build a toolbox with every tool in it if you leave the toolbox closed and sit on your couch? You could have the most fantastic set of tools. Todd would be, like, excited. He'd offer you $10,000 for your toolbox for his business. But it's useless. Just like James said, faith is useless without works. Useless. So knowledge is just the beginning of the spiritual life. It's, it's what you need to gather to go live. Just like the church, if you remember Pastor's blog on MASH, the church is a mass unit. We're not, we're not here to just hide from the world and hunker down. We're here to come in, recover, encourage each other, heal each other, so we can go back out there and fight the real fight. That's what the Spirit's been saying. I mean, what are we doing? What are we doing? What are we here for? So again, this on the board means living by faith, if you're going to Use all the tools that you're gaining or acquiring. This deceived perspective on knowledge can be attributed to laziness and arrogance. Arrogance makes you lazy because you think you're all set. So you can rest on your laurels. And as we've studied in the past, laziness is against the commands of God, which are to work hard and help others. So it's really a form of arrogance when we rest on our laurels of knowledge. We are deceiving ourselves. And ultimately, even for a knowledge-filled believer, they can lack faith. Faith to do, faith to live in the knowledge. They can lack that. Faith to live in the truth. And that's a shame. Satan loves that. And arrogance is the culprit. 
So again, under the category of knowing is not living. Living is what makes faith come alive or makes it real. In fact, without living in what you believe, a person's faith is not appropriated or consummated. Until you live in what you say you believe, you won't really understand what you say you know. Let me repeat that. And this is what he's been showing me personally lately, and I'll give you an example. Until you live in what you say you believe, you won't really understand what you say you know. You won't fully get it, and you won't be set free. Until you go out and live by faith, in whatever area of life we're talking about, until you step out by faith and try it, you're not going to get it. You can have all the book knowledge about it. You can quote the scripture. You're not going to understand it. You're going to, you understand 1% when you could understand 99%. That's how important I believe application is, how, how important doing is, living in the faith of what you say you believe. I think God shows us a whole bunch of things beyond what we can even uh, you know, imagine that we're going to learn by doing something. Okay, When you do something, you might think, okay, I'm going to learn this and this and this. I'm going to try it. I'm going to learn this and this and this. And you come out of it learning three totally different things, probably in addition to what you wanted to gather or learn. You are not going to really understand what you say you know until you step out and live by faith. And you won't be set free either. The truths in the Word of God become real to us when we live them. And there's no way around that. That's part of the good news for us as believers. But the only ones that get that reward are those that live by faith. So they can be set free, so they can see these things that they want to see, but do they, want, do they really want to see or they just want to know and rest on that? The righteous man will live by faith. For an example of what's on the board, you can't truly understand how to give the gospel until you give the gospel to somebody. You can't truly understand how to give the gospel to someone until you actually give the gospel to someone. So you can say that you know what you should say when you give the gospel, right? I mean, I've done this for years. You tinker with it in your head. How am I going to say this right? First I'll say this, then I'll say this, then I'll say this. I don't want to mess this up. Okay? That's our flesh getting in the way. But anyway, we all can do that. We all can say this is the gospel. This is how we should say it. You can rehearse it. You can say how you would say it. You can write it down. You won't really learn its power and freedom until you use it. And you're going to learn a ton from actually the process of giving it to someone. And every time you do it, you're going to learn more. So it's like having a sword that stays in its sheath all the time. What good is that? You have the sword of the Word of God in Hebrews 4. What good is it if you keep it in the sheath? Only if you live by faith. Are you going to understand the things that you know? 
So since we're on this topic, we're talking about both power and living in the gospel. Go to Romans 1.16 and let's see these two principles again combined. Romans 1.16. Knowing is not living. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Are you? I know I was at times even as an evangelist, an ordained evangelist. I had times, and probably still have times, where I'm ashamed of the gospel. But we shouldn't be because that's the power. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So again, you can't truly understand how to give the gospel to somebody until you actually do it. You, you can tinker with it in your head all you want. You're not going to understand its power and freedom. So that being said, you know, we all have different gifts, right? Every one of you probably want to say, well, I'm not an evangelist. I don't have to do that. I don't want to do that. But yet we're called to the Great Commission And we're told to do the work of an evangelist. So that being said, everyone has their strengths. And there are different ways to share the gospel. You might not be a Paul, but you might be a Barnabas. Okay, If you remember, Paul was the one that did most of the talking, most of the preaching. And Barnabas was with him on a lot of his trips. You can still participate in giving the gospel by simply choosing to go on the trip, quote-unquote, whatever the trip is, okay? I'm not saying you have to go to India. But you can participate in giving the gospel by simply choosing to go on the trip. It might be a trip to your neighbor's house one day. It might be a trip to see a, a dying friend in the hospital. But you have to be willing to go on the trip. And you could be a person of few words, but the Holy Spirit gives you just a few right words to say. Some of you, for example, you willingly tended the church booth we had at the Cowchip Festival a couple weeks ago, even though you might not be an outgoing person and you might not be comfortable giving the gospel. So, You were there sharing in, giving the gospel in one form or another. Maybe you were a Barnabas and not a Paul, all right? This reminds me of uh, Destiny, the young lady I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago who was in prep school with me years ago, and literally all I heard from her mouth was, hi, and it was that quiet, and that was it. She was probably the quietest person I've ever met, and she's going to be a Christian teacher at a school in Egypt. 
How does that happen? Tell me that's not God. You say you can't give the gospel. She literally didn't talk. And she's a teacher now of the Bible. So, like, how does that happen? She's humble enough to get out of the way and let the Spirit use her. Even though she has quiet vocal cords, they still work. And she gives it over to him. But you can willingly participate in giving the gospel by simply being there, by making a trip. You can vitally support someone who's doing the talking. You were a Barnabas to Paul, maybe, at the Couchet Festival. For example, I heard at the festival, I wasn't there when Jim was there, Big Jim was there, and I heard he was out in front of the table with salvation tracks passing them out. Now, that might not be you, at least that manner of giving the gospel, let's say, but if you were there at the booth, sitting behind the table, you were an important backup to him, a support to him. You were giving the gospel. You were sharing and giving the gospel, whether you think you weren't or not. That role is vital. And I'm going to you know, give you an example in a minute. But it's important to have your brother's back. Paul had Barnabas, right? And what does Barnabas mean? Remember what his name means? We should know, right? Bible study? Son of encouragement. Thanks, Monica. Son of encouragement. What do you think he was to Paul? I mean, if Paul was alone, do you, let me ask you, do you think Paul might have been timid at times, especially if he was alone? Do you think he might have given in to fear if he was alone? And I can speak from personal experience. I know when someone is with me, and I'm sharing the gospel with someone, my courage is quite a bit higher. Call it my weakness, but God knows our weakness. And Jesus said, go out in twos, right? He sent the disciples out in twos. So you can be the son of encouragement if you're not the main speaker. But you have to make the trip. You have to be willingly humble to make the trip. And we're all called to that. We're all called to the Great Commission. Are you going to be a Mark that went with Paul on his trips? Are you going to be a Silas that went with Paul on his trips? You know, you don't have to be talkative or have a certain ability to participate in giving the gospel. You have to go on the trip. So there's a certain synergy that happens. There's a spiritual thing that happens when two or more are standing together. And I hope you know, like, just think about that example, even in the natural realm. When you're with somebody else doing something, it's easier, right? But take it to the spiritual realm. Spiritual attacks. You know, in your own soul, from other people outside of you, um, from Satan, from the kingdom of darkness. And when two people are together, there's a certain spiritual supernatural thing that takes place. If only one person shares the gospel, those listening might think he's nuts or he's out there, right? I guess think of yourself at a party maybe or a family function and you've got maybe two people with you, three people with you and you're the only believer there. 
And when you give the gospel, okay, there's a tendency in those people listening to say, you're a loner. You're a weirdo. Why do you believe that? Right? When you're at that same situation and next to you is your brother in Christ, number one, you're much more relaxed or confident. But number two, those people listening to that gospel are saying in their heads, he's not the only one that believes this. This guy right standing right next to him is going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And there's a supernatural, spiritual power in that that God tells us to use. Go out in twos. So basically, in a way, I'm asking for help because I've been convicted to live in the Great Commission much more than I have been. And I don't want to play any more games and I don't want to waste any more time. Time is short. So I'm going out every weekend and I need some willing partners to stand by my side, even if just for a couple hours. So let me know if you're open to it. Um, you let me know privately. It'll change your perspective, even if you're not the one doing the talking. So on the board, again, knowing is not living. They are far apart, these two things. One can be lifeless, and the other is dynamic and powerful and life-changing. And you can know the Great Commission, but to live in it is an entirely different thing. But once again, if you want to enjoy the blessings of God, this takes humility. It takes being willingly humble to make the trip, to step out of your comfort zone. Go to 1 Peter 5, 6 again. 1 Peter 5, 6. Don't know why I'm getting emotional, but between the excitement of, of doing, doing what we're called to do and, and my excitement for you to see the things that I get to see sometimes just operating in my gift, I know what you're missing out on by not living in it, by not trying it, by not participating in some way. I know what you're missing out on. And in the big picture, you're missing out on God's biggest command for us in this life. 1 Peter 5, 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. If you're going to humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, that means obey his commands. A humble person obeys. And what's one of them? Verse 7. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's an act of humility. And when we don't do that, that's arrogance. So on the board, we've been talking about seeing it all as truth in the light. Throwing all our anxieties on him works because by faith we say, well, we've given it over to him and he'll take care of it from here. If we wrestle with it, with our own flesh, because we're arrogant, we don't have the promises of deliverance. We don't experience the freedom, in other words. Rather, we have darkness to strive against, something we cannot overcome on our own. 
and we wrestle with it. So again, throwing all of our anxieties on him, it works. If and when we do it by faith, if and when we actually give it over to him, it works. Otherwise, you'll be wrestling with some form of darkness. So keep your eyes on the light. Keep your eyes on him. Keep your eyes on the truth, not in the darkness. Only God can truly deliver us from the darkness. And God demands our humility. Arrogance cannot deliver you. Stubbornness cannot deliver you. Boxing God out because you have your favorites with God is not going to deliver you. It's going to put you in more bondage. Leaving you with one option, humility. Only God can deliver you. A saved or delivered person is an obedient one. I.e. living in the Great Commission. Being willing to live in the Great Commission. An obedient person then enjoys God's peace in time. A disobedient one doesn't. For example, if you surrender and obey God's command to go out and make disciples, and you live in the Great Commission in some way, shape, or form, you will find His peace becomes a reality in your life. You know, you know the feeling of when you finally figure out your purpose? It could be in other areas of your life, maybe. Maybe you figure out what your, your job is to be, your niche in life, whatever. There's a certain peace that comes with knowing your purpose. We have the privilege of not being confused about our purpose in life. So you got it. You know right now what God's purpose is for us as believers. To go out and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, Son, and the Spirit, right? You know that's part of our calling, a major part of our calling. So be set free by it. You don't have to search for it anymore. You know, and it might be with kids, it might be with old people, it might be with your family, it might be in different areas of life, your own pulpit, but embrace that you can actually say you know why you're alive and what God wants from you. And only then, only when you live in that purpose are you going to be set free. So stop trying to be set free or hoping to be set free just because you know what the Word says. Knowing is not living. Only living sets you free. Fate does. True fate does. It's active. It's alive. I'll give you a quick example. Um, I have a believer friend of mine who's really been struggling lately in his life. And you know what he said to me recently? was he just wants to help people. In the, in the core of like the desire of his heart, the thing that he sees as the solution, the, the way of peace, is to actually be able to help people. What's he talking about? Living by faith? Right? You mean actually obeying God, working hard and serving others? And that's where the peace comes from? Yeah, from actually doing it. And you know what's awesome is he's doing it now. And God's opened up to him a couple channels in his life, a couple avenues to help other people, even with the gospel. 
and now he's, he's actually living in it and he's being set free and being healed. But if you want to stay in your arrogance and stay in your cubbyhole, you're not going to be set free. You're going to be in bondage. God wants us to enjoy life and to be fulfilled. And the only way is by living in the calling. So back to our position in Christ. Because that's our, um, that's our stability. That's, that's where we live from. That's the position we live from. Okay, we've been talking about the victor's stand and how living the spiritual life in Christ, in the new creature, is more like avoiding being dragged off of the victor's stand than it is trying to climb up to it. That's our position on the victor's stand. And it's from that position we're able to go out and live by faith. That's why it's so doable if you just get out of the way because you already have this powerful position that God's placed you in and he's like remember who you are in me and now go go make disciples go for it every believer has been placed on the victor's stand positionally the truth of the matter is the only place to go is down. That's the truth of our reality, if you believe it. But Satan lies and tells us that we have to climb up. That's why he loves the idea of religion. This came up on Sunday. He loves the idea of religion because it, it convinces us we need to climb up. We need to elevate ourselves and take credit for the climbing. Almost like climbing a mountain and you reach a plateau and you look down at everybody and wave. Right? Look where I am. We want to take credit. No, 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 no. You're a scumbag. You're a sinner. You're dirty. And God put you on the top of the mountain. And he says, here. Now go shout off the mountain. Tell everybody. Enjoy the ride. Let's see Joshua the high priest as an example of this position that we're supposed to operate from. Go to Zechariah chapter 3. And you know what? God does this right in Satan's face. When a believer turns to Christ, when a person turns to Christ in humility, when they repent and they believe in Christ for salvation, right? God does that right in Satan's face. He puts him on top of the mountain. And Satan is so frustrated because they finally realized and believed in grace instead of religion. He's so frustrated, but he can't do a thing about it. So this is the position that we stand and walk and live from. And that's how the righteous man lives by faith. Look at Zechariah 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Look what the Lord's saying. I've snatched this one out of the fire by grace. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. That means he's a sinner. He spoke 
and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and clothed him with garments, while the angel of the Lord was standing by. Now notice what the Lord says next. After placing Joshua on the victor's stand for all to see. Verse 6. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house, and also have charge of my courts. And I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. Notice after the Lord gave Joshua a spot on the victory stand, he says, now live in it. Live in that faith. Live in that thing I just gave you, that position. Stay on the mountain. Don't get dragged down. You're in no need to climb up any further. I've placed you there. And now you have the opportunity to live by faith in what I've done for you. That's all experiential sanctification is. You remember living in our position? Living in our position. Go live by faith. You have it all. You have the Spirit inside of you. Jesus is with you all the time. What, what, what's holding you back? Lack of faith. False religion says we obey so we can climb the ladder to the victor stand. But as the Spirit brought out on Sunday, true religion is wrought with obedience. Why? Because God's love has become the sanctification of its possessors. Why is true religion, why is good religion wrought with obedience, filled with obedience? Because of guilt? Because of earning your way to heaven or something? Or is it because you realize God's love has become your sanctification? You realize how much He loves you, so you want to obey Him. That's true religion. We believers are motivated to obey God's commands not because we think we need to climb up, but because God's love and grace has promoted us even above the angels. That's what should motivate you. That's what should give you a heart for God. You remember in 2 Corinthians 5.14, we saw a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, the love of Christ motivates us. It's the love of Christ motivates us. We love Him because He first loved us. That motivates us to love Him. So we're pulled in by His love. And it's that that gives us the power to live by faith. The power to step out and to make the trip, whatever trip that is, in your great commission. And so the point has been, living the spiritual life in Christ, in the new creature, is more like avoiding being dragged off the victor's stand rather than climbing up to it. So as we close, 
pastor mentioned Sunday how he and his family were up late one night watching a sermon by Pastor Francis Chan titled The Thrill of Obedience. And he was talking about how life in this world can be equated to a toilet bowl where Satan kind of sucks you in to just go for the ride on the, uh, the outer rim that's just like Lazy Man's River. It's no big deal. Just dip your foot in the pool, right? <laughs> Almost started singing a song there. Um, I watched this video the other night myself, and I highly recommend it. In fact, I say to you, please go watch it. And if you're not sure how to find it on YouTube, email me. I'll send you the link. You can just click on it and watch it. But besides the, the toilet bowl analogy that Pastor Chan gave and how Satan convinces people that it's no big deal to dip your foot in the pool, Pastor Chan also said that Satan doesn't mind if you gather together and learn the word and are even convicted by it, just so long as you don't act on it. Isn't that what the whole Bible says? Big picture? I mean, faith without works is dead. Right? Why was Abraham such a great believer? Because his faith, what he believed, he did all these great things with it. Not to his own credit, it was by faith he did these things. In like Romans chapter 4. We're designed to, as believers, live by faith. That's what we're supposed to do. And Satan is elated if you come to Bible study, you learn the word, you get convicted, and then you go home sad, as Pastor Chan put it, because you don't know what to do, or you don't want to do it, or you don't want to change your life, you don't want to drop something. You go home sad, like the rich young ruler in the Bible. He was convicted went home sad because he was unwilling to change. As long as you don't act on your convictions, you're, you're being lulled to sleep. And Pastor Chan said, even from his own experience, he's, a, he's been a pastor for 20 years, even from his own experience, the only time you will feel peace is when you act on the Word of God that you're convicted of. That's the only time you're going to get peace. When you actually go out and live by faith. When you live in what you say you believe. So back to the Great Commission and sharing the gospel. Look what Paul said on the board in 1 Corinthians 9.16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. I'm the one miserable if I don't live in the gospel. If I don't live by faith. But you know what? The opposite is true too. When I do live in the gospel, I have joy, I have peace, I have contentment, I have fulfillment. I have understanding of what I know. I get it. And I'm enjoying it. That was Paul's life. You will enjoy God's happiness and find peace if you just get out of the way and start living in what you're called to live in, which is sharing the good news with others. Folks, it's good news. It's not like we have to go tell somebody, you know, I got some bad news for you. 
You know, it's good news. Yeah, we should tell them about sin and repentance, and there is a lake of fire. But here's the good news. And if they don't want to believe you, that's their problem. You've got the good news of the universe. And woe is you if you don't preach the gospel. That's going to be, your life will be incomplete, even as a believer, if you do not live in the Great Commission. I really believe that. In terms of your own soul, you will not be at peace. And just remember, the Lord is by your side, always. This little girl, Destiny, from prep school, who couldn't speak, she has obviously some type of a strong faith because she's doing things she shouldn't be doing that her own family probably told her, you can't do that. Look at you. You you don't talk. You know, you can't do that. And she's doing things that are supernatural. The Lord is by your side always. And if you believe that, you'll find strength. You'll do, the, you'll do in things that you thought were impossible for you. All right? I, I mean, raise your hand if you, there are certain things you think that you could never do. Right? We all, we all know. We all have our things. I could never do that. But why do you think that way? That's not the new nature. The new nature says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I mean, I look forward to the things that God's going to lead me into and d- to do. So I can say to people, it wasn't me. Because that thing I thought was impossible for me. You know what I mean? And, and we all have that um, opportunity. But he's always with you. He's always by your side. We saw on Sunday, Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Wherever you go. So whatever trip you make for the Great Commission, whether it's to your neighbors or to your, your soup kitchen or to the hospital or to India, doesn't matter. Wherever he leads you to go, because you're praying for an opportunity to be involved in the Great Commission, right? You should be. As weak as you are, the weaker you are, the better it is. Because then when you go forward in that thing, and you share the gospel with somebody as a Paul or a Barnabas, God says, look what I did through that person. You remember how weak they were? You remember how weak you were? Look what I just allowed you to participate in, in the Great Commission. It's our great opportunity, and God does not need people that are able or who are good talkers. God needs willingly humble vessels. Willingly humble vessels. How did the apostles preach the gospel? Boldly. Who were these guys? Uneducated fishermen. How did they do it? How did they boldly preach in front of the Pharisees, the intellects, the professors? It's like today, you and I going to Brown University and preaching the gospel in front of a room full of professors. What did did the Pharisees say, though, about the disciples? 
who are these men? They preach with such confidence and boldness, and they're just uneducated fishermen. So the power of God is in us. And on the board, as part of the Great Commission, Jesus said, I'm always with you, even to the end of the age. That was his encouragement at the end of the great command to go out. I'm always with you even to the end of the age. Go for it. You have nothing to lose. You literally have nothing to lose by living by faith in the Great Commission. Let's close with 2 Timothy 1.7. Sorry, I'm going to be two minutes over, but 2 Timothy 1.7. This just makes our point. We're going out from a position of victory. And we're going out with the power of God. Don't try it like the sons of Sceva. Remember the seven sons of Sceva when they went to, to uh, get the demons out of a person? They said, I command you in Jesus' name. But the demon said to them, I, you know, I know Paul and I know Jesus, but I don't know you. And, and, the, and the guy kicked the crap out of them and they went to the house naked. They were doing it in the wrong power. They weren't relying on God's power. They were relying on their own power. We have the Spirit. Look at verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Power and love and discipline. That's a picture of the light, if you think about it, in a way, the well-roundedness of God and His light. Power, but at the same time in love. Telling the truth in love, right? And discipline. Like He gives us these, this way of thinking that is so well-rounded and complete and only the Spirit can give it to us. This was what the apostles did. They trusted in the Spirit for their power. And they preached boldly but in love. And a lot of people listened. And you know what? These guys, these guys weren't good speakers. They weren't. I mean, even Paul, he had a problem with his speaking. God, God would rather use you if you don't think you're a good speaker. He'd rather use you than someone who thinks they are a good speaker because it's all to his glory. But no matter who you are, and whether you're a Paul or a Barnabas, he wants us to just willingly get out of the way. Stop saying, I can't do this, because that is a foolish way to think. God's saying, all things are possible with me. Will you believe me? Will you step out and live by faith? Will you make the trip wherever I call you? Are you willingly humble? Because I'll do great things with you. You're not going to believe the things I'll do with you, if you're willing. So again, really the summary is knowing is not living. And I hope we all take that to heart. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word and for your encouragement and for your spirit, the spirit of Jesus being with us and in us at all times. Father, help us be humble under your mighty hand and be willing to go forward in your plan for us and your calling, especially the Great Commission. Father, give us the courage and the faith 
to forget about ourselves and to reach out to a lost and dying world that needs the good news so desperately. We thank you for the privilege and opportunity of participating in this before you call us home. We ask that you bless us all as we go. It's in Christ's precious name we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.